Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long. And now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Jim Long, out in Arkansas. Shalom, Rabbi, in Yerushalayim, the holy city, the, this, the land of Israel, the navel of the world. There you go. And shalom to all our listeners all over the world. This, this, these waning end days of the month of Mar Cheshvan. In fact, next week... Uh, on, uh, I believe, Tuesday, September, no, November, where am I? Where's my head? Tuesday on November 17th, we shall be ushering in the new moon of the month of Kislev, known as the month of dreams. Uh, it's all about dreaming that month. And it is, of course, the month of uh, Hanukkah. It's a very special time, as is every month on the Hebrew calendar with its own reverberating theme. Um, actually, this coming Sunday, the um, this coming Sunday, uh, the 18th, is it? No, this coming Sunday, the, what is Sunday? Oh, I'll I tell you right now. No calendar in front of me here. Here it is, this coming Sunday, the 15th of um, November. We're having a special Zoom class about the month of Kislev. Um, the, we've been having Zoom classes every Sunday. We've been ha- we've been having a series for a number of weeks now on the lives of the forefathers, and um, I really love the Zoom classes because the participants, you know, there's just a feeling of like a family. The people that are joining our Zoom classes, and I want uh, our listeners to know that they're also invited. They can they can email me rabbi at rabbirichmond for the Zoom ID and login info to join us and to receive recordings of previous classes. But this Sunday. The 15th, we're going to be having a very special uh, class about the properties and challenges and special special aspects of this coming month of Kislev. So I just wanted to put that out there. In any event, here we are as the world turns all around us, and you can take that in all sorts of different <laughs> directions, Jim. I know, I know you'd like to, and uh, the thing is this. The thing is that this week... In our Torah portion of Chaye Sarah, it's a it's an unusual portion because it's really only two concepts in the whole portion, and that is the death of Sarah, the matriarch Sarah, Abraham's wife, and uh, and of course Abraham's Abraham's procurement of the Marat Hamachpelah, the double cave in in Hebron as a burial place, and the second um, concept in our Torah portion is the mission that Avraham gave over to his servant Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzchak and, and uh, Rivka's marriage to Yitzchak. And those are the, there's only two concepts in the whole portion and they're, they're actually very much um, connected. And one of the, one of the major ideas that emerges from the Parsha um, is the concept of the meaning of, of the of the life cycle of growing old, the true meaning of old age, you know, and and how do we how do we feel about old age and the perpetuation of of the generations, you know, because because some people get very very, um, you know, nervous c- contemplating growing old. Some people do celebrate it, but there's a lot of people in the world who they cringe so much at the thought of of old age that they do everything in their power to kind of disguise it or deny it, you know. 
Um, so how do we feel about, about all this? The reason I mention this, because what's so interesting is that the Parsha starts out, this week's Torah portion in Genesis 23, starts out with a verse, Sarah's lifetime was 100 years, 20 years, and 7 years, the years of Sarah's life. So the Parsha, ah, yeah. is, the, the Parsha is called Chaye Sarah. Yeah, well, it's a, she, she, the life passed, of Sarah, but the whole away. thing is about her death. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing really. is about her death, and yet that, and yet the portion is called the life of Sarah. Now, what, what's really, uh, what's really interesting is that the parsha. I mean, it basically these verses are introducing us to her death, and the parsha has nothing to do with, with her life, right? It's it's about her death, and the thing is, what's really, really amazing, you know, because there's a certain principle in in Torah study. That uh, is, it's very deep, very, very deep. Open up your heart in the deepest way. Material that the first time something is mentioned in the Torah is the main teaching for that thing, and and we derive like the deepest understanding from the first time that a, that a, a subject appears. It's like where all of its secrets are found, right? It's like a precedent, right? Yeah. And and. Um, you're not going to believe it because you, you might not have thought about it, but when it, when you think about it, you 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 realize this is the first time in the Torah that the Torah actually records the death of a person. What I mean by this is wow. obvi obviously there have been many many generations throughout history, and many many people have passed away, many people have died, right? But Sarah is the first person about whom the Torah records that a grave was purchased and the first person whose burial is recorded. Now, why is that? Because obviously everyone else was also buried, right? So, but why is Sarah's burial singled out? And not only that, another, another unbelievable thing is that, is that Sarah here in our Torah portion what, what did we read? We read, And Sarah died in Kiryath Arba, which is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Avraham came to cry over Sarah and to eulogize her. And Abraham right. arose from before his dead, and he spoke to the sons of Chet, saying, I am a stranger inhabitant with you. Give me burial property with you so that I may bury my dead from before me. Sarah is the first person whom the Torah bothers to record who was cried over by their spouse. Yeah. She's the first person who was eulogized. Can I put forth a couple of ideas that that have come to me from the study of this, and that uh, some of it, I know that I must have gleaned from previous commentaries I've read, and it seems to me, uh, uh, I, I want to hear your answer, but I want to offer the. I want to hear your answer. Okay. Well, what I was going to say is that it seems to me that the reason that there there's such significance attached to this is, first of all, it shows the honor accorded Sarah in in the Torah. And by and by extension, the honor that is uh, bestowed upon women in general in the Torah, because she is sort of the template for. Uh, I would even venture to say that that she inspired the the uh, Proverbs thirty, the Eshet Chayel, thirty one, isn't it? Th or thirty one. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe, maybe you. you're right. Maybe it is thirty. Yeah, but anyway, the last, the, cha the last chapter of Proverbs. Right, where where you know the this is uh, I know when we I've been asked to sometimes uh, officiate at uh, Noahide weddings, and I always make it a point to read uh, about the Chayel and and the, the how it extols the virtues of of a woman like Sarah, and she was and also so, a greater prophet than Abraham. 
Exactly. And in fact, told it, Abraham, listen to whatever Sarah tells you. I'm glad you said that because in, in the ceremonies that, that I've conducted, I always read the verse. It's in Breshit 2112. And I and I tell them I tell the groom, don't forget the words of Hashem, our creator, to Avraham about his wife. Listen to your wife. Listen to your wife. Because it it comes full circle from the creation of Eve, because this is a tremendous thing, because one of the other verses that we often read, I know I've heard you read the verses in a wedding ceremony, is from Prashit, is the is about the the uh, the formation of Eve. And there is this wonderful deep teaching in that they that uh, this first being of Adam and Eve were created as one being, and then they were they you know Hashem puts Adam asleep, and and even though Adam was created, this first being was created from the elements of the earth. Eve was fashioned from a whole being, a a, a man who was flesh and blood, and the, the by virtue of her being created that way, or actually fashioned that way made her a little bit different uh, creature, a, d- a different uh, uh, formation. And it even showed that she was closer to being, uh, shall I say, perfect? I mean, we're not all perfect, but she was closer to perfection because she was created out of out of Adam's side. Well, out of- also shows the closeness of, of the, uh, on the, when a person, when two people, a husband and wife, merits. Mm-hmm. To find a true, their true soulmates. They're, it's the idea of Bashert. They're they're one. They're one person. They were separated at birth. Literally, they are. Right. They are uh, now uh, reuniting. Well, what I was going to say is that the 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 Hazal sages take this even further by pointing out that because she was she was formed in a in a different way, a very unique way, that she was um, gifted with this what we often call intuition. And what really the, the Torah calls a, a voice of prophecy, because because she was created in this way, she's a little bit elevated soul in that she's she's connected to Hashem. I mean, women in the Torah aren't even required to observe as many mitzvot. First of all, according to Torah, it's not a little elevated; it's very elevated. Women, there you go. There's okay. no question about it that women are much higher. Than men spiritually, they are much more. They are much purer. They are much more spiritually inclined. They are much, uh, if you will, closer to Hashem. Intuitively, they they have a certain kind of of propensity towards a higher nature. This is a total tangent from where I was going to go in the parsha. But I know that you have um, weddings on your mind because I know that you're going to be traveling tomorrow and performing a wedding. So you you you're thinking a lot about this. So let me share one idea with you, even though it's a it's a complete um, digression from from the parsha. But but I know you're going to be performing a wedding tomorrow. So I want to mention an idea um, a, 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 along these lines of how important it is um, for the the husband and wife to be um, without any sort of, of of separation between them. How their their unity has to be unparalleled. So you know that the at a Jewish wedding, under the chuppah, which of course represents both their new home and the shekhinah, you know, the divine presence uh, hovering over them. Gosh. Also, also, so the the uh, the the formula for the for the marriage 
when the groom uh, places the ring on the finger of the bride is that he says a very, very specific uh, formula for, and for thousands of years. He says, behold, you are sanctified unto me with this ring according to the law of Moshe and Israel. Okay. He says, at li. behold, you are sanctified to me kidat Moshe v'Yisrael according to the law of Moshe and Israel. So the interesting thing is that this formula isn't found anywhere else in any observance in the whole Torah of all the things that we do, the thousands of things that we do, the mitzvot, the the activities, all the things that we do. We never say that formula, that this is according to dat Moshe v'Yisrael. So why is it by the wedding of a bride and groom that we have this phrase, this is a unique phrase, you behold, you are betrothed to me with this ring according to the law, as it were, the dot of Moshe and Israel. So the answer that I was taught by my great master, uh, one of my great masters, is a very, very beautiful answer. The answer is like this. Open up your heart in the deepest way, because this is like you fall off your chair, right? What happened when Adam and Eve did what they did in the garden and everything went south. So Hashem comes to Adam and he says, what happened here? And he says, what happened here? And according to the simple interpretation of the verses, this is also not so simple as we learned in our Zoom class, but Adam says, she did it. You know, yeah. the, the wife, <laughs> the woman that you gave me, she she did it, you know? So that's the first thing he does, right? He blames her. Mm-hmm. But open up your heart in the deepest way. Exodus 32, 32. I never forget that because 32 is lev. Lamed Bet is heart, right? Heart. So it's this, it's the hardiest verse of the hardiest chapter of the book of Exodus. Chapter 32 and verse 32. What, what did Moshe say when Hashem wanted to wipe out the whole children of Israel in the episode of the golden calf? Moshe says, if you if you do that, erase my name from the book. Erase my name from the book. He pleaded for their lives, and he said, "My life has no significance without them." To the point that if they're not, if they're, if they're not here, I don't even want to be in existence. I wanted to be like I was never born. Erase my name from the book. So basically, what the what the husband is saying to the wife, God willing, under the chuppah as they start their life out, as he's pledging, he's saying, "With you and me, I don't want it to be like it was with Adam and Eve. I want it to be like it was with Moshe and Israel." I don't want to. I don't want to blame you. I want to say no. I can't live without you. Is May that I use something? that in the ceremony? Please, five seconds. <laughs> Listen. The reason I, 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 I gift it to you right now for for that. Thank you. Couple that I, you I want to. I want to point out that 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 there is this odd connection between uh, the marriage contract and the contract of buying a a, a, a burial plot for Sarah. Because there is, because the, the, isn't this also the first uh, mention of a contract uh, in, in the Torah or not? Yes, yes, yes. You're yeah. right about that as well. And so there is this, there is this, again, you know, I don't want to sound like a Disney cartoon, but there is a circle of life involved here in that the marriage contract, the ketuvah, actually gets its format, if you will, from the burial contract for the cave. And and it 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 is a kind of a life cycle uh, that is that's uh, saying that you know that that and and by virtue of the fact that this is called the life of Sarah, that you know even though it's it's dealing with the specifics of her internment, it is a reaffirmation not only of Sarah 
and and all women and and a model for women it is a on a very mundane level it's it's the way that uh even in the the throes of bereavement that uh we're we're sort of um enjoined to to carry on with life to carry on with the business of life because even even i think the sages tell us that uh avram who was such a public figure he grieved he kept his grief in private he he basically went into his into his house and he kept it from uh he didn't make a big display of it and he cuz he considered that a very private thing the way he considered his his love and his uh his intimacy with Sarah, a very private thing. The way, the, the way, the way observant Jewish people don't do what we call PDA, public displays of affection. Let me, let me address also some of the questions that I, that I, I want to ask you, Jim, have you ever been, I guess you, you love Israel as everybody knows, and you've been to Israel many, many times. And I know that you wish you were here right now, but we have this COVID situation. Have you been to the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron? Oh, I, I, I have been blessed to have been there twice. My first trip to Israel and then uh, a recent trip, I also went back with my friend who's it's an archaeologist. It's a very, very amazing place. It's, it's, it is. And the word that one almost has to use invariably is magical because mm-hmm. the atmosphere there is so unique. The the uh, level of power of the, just the intensity of the sanctity of, uh, the, you know, it's not only Avraham and Sarah and Yitzhak and, and Rebecca and Isaac right. and Yaakov and Leah that are buried there. It's also Adam and Chava. In yeah. fact, the re- the reason that uh, Avraham was so keen on purchasing this particular place as his burial place was because he knew that this was the burial place of Adam and Eve, and um, so it's called Marat Hamachpela, the cave of the double, the double cave. First of all, because it's a, it's a it's a cave over a cave, but also because of the couples that are buried there. Now. Now it's it's even deeper than that. It is uh, again. I I uh, might be seen as shamelessly plugging my Zoom classes, but we had an unbelievable series of classes about um, Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden, and we learned there that um, what Avraham discovered is that the tomb of the patriarchs. And at that time, it was just a field, an entrance to mm-hmm. a field. Yeah. Hebron is actually the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Exactly. So talk more about that in that class. Anybody at all that's listening that would like a recording of that class, please just email me and I'll be glad to send it to you. But when anyway. uh, Kalev came uh, along with the other spies, isn't there uh, in the oral tradition that w- when Kalev came in, he, he actually followed a dog? And the dog led him down in through the cave, and he didn't he rediscover the entrance well, to the, ver- the verse in in Parshat Shalach in the Book of Numbers tells us that he uh, went up to Hebron, and mm-hmm. he, what he did was he took a he took a detour to pray there. Yeah. Um, I, I have be- to tell you, every time I go there, I stand at the entrance before you go into the. They built a mosque there, of course, and I look down into there is this sort of a pit you know what i'm talking about right beside as you go up the steps and you look down and there's this and i there are times i wish i could i could go you know of course it's this the the sacredness of the place is you know almost untouchable but you you feel like you'd love to i would love to be able to take our modern technology that you know like ground penetrating radar 
and you wouldn't have to disturb the sanctity of the grave. You could literally scan if you could find the right place, and it would be marvelous to see the outline of the double cave and those and those couples that are in turn there. This thing has been done. Um, there is a lot online available. I think some of it is even in English about um, some attempts that have been made in the in the past few years to explore the lower level of uh, of the building on the cave, and it's it's really amazing. And that's another subject altogether. I want I wanted to say, Jim, you know, speaking of the f- the fact that Sarah is the first person whom the Torah describes a eulogy for. Again, it it can't all just be because of um, of Sarah's greatness. Um, and it can't all just be because of the singular uh, relationship of, of of Abraham and Sarah. They were a very good couple, um, and 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 also the fact is that they that they also are like kind of like a, a prototype for all humanity. But there's something else going on here that I wanted to raise, um, and and I think that the, that other idea is also. Uh, instructive for us to understand why is it again uh, the major question? Why is the parsha called Chaye Sarah, the de- the life yeah. Sarah, even though the topic is her death? And the and the the there's so many beautiful explanations in the places that we've been going now, and and some of the amazing things that you mentioned about women and all the things that we learn from Sarah. But the basic and most simple meaning, I think, is the fact that you know Sarah's life was exemplary; it was a full life. If, because my, my my opening question was, why doesn't the Torah bother to record anybody else's death and or anybody else's burial? And in other words, there's a whole, a whole closing of a circle here. There's there's a purchasing of a plot. There's burial, and of course, a plot and a grave is very important in the, the Torah mindset in the Jewish understanding because that is the place from where the resurrection uh, transpires. And so that's a whole another subject. But the idea is that. Death has no meaning if life has no meaning, right? So if if a life is lived to the fullest, then it then the death is also significant because what the what the, the expression, the name of the parsha Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, is really teaching us is that it's only the life that counts and not the death. And and all of these details that the Torah is giving us about you know her death is basically bearing witness on the on the impact of of her life. That's really what's what's going on here because it's again these years are formative. These people are t- a template for the formation of the nation and all of the ideals that we're going to be emulating and all of the ways that we're going to be serving Hashem and bringing Hashem's light into the world and understanding how we navigate through the circuitous roots of the human condition. And Sarah's life is basically a beacon showing us. It's it's almost like. The the name of the portion Chayesar is almost kind of like a like a victory over death. You know, it's like a it's it's like an, an a statement of eternity. You know, yeah. Rob Rob Cook called uh, this parsha the uh, the Torah of Sarah. Wow, and I think that says a lot about what you're saying. It sort of encapsulates that because her character and her deeds are are encapsulated in this, and the uh, she she's basically. Uh, alive in every righteous woman that we read about in in the Torah. And we see that carried on even even in the the story when subsequently we uh Eleazar is charged with finding a, a wife for uh the grieving uh, son, Isaac. And and uh, that whole remarkable story of, about going to uh 
uh, was it Bethuel? To the family of of uh, of Abraham, really. Yeah, and and they he he's. It shows you. I think it's remarkable because it shows you. Even here is a a man who's merely called a servant, Eleazar, and yet he goes and it, he demonstrates the same profound faith that the whole family of Abraham and Sarah uh, exhibit all the time. In that he when he that's just unbelievable. I mean, the whole thing in the parsha of Eleazar's mission, and then the repetition. Of him saying over to his host the whole thing all over again. I mean, it's just unbelievable because you know there's not one extraneous word in the whole Torah. So the whole, I want you to know that this week, God willing, our video, our Torah portion, you know, uh, I like to review a little bit of, of everything, but there's only one thing that I really want to talk about uh, in the portion in the in the video. So I don't want to talk about it now, but that's a very very amazing thing that happened. And it's unsung. It's not spoken about enough. And I, w- I want to really understand it, and I want to explore it in our in our tour video this week. And that is the fact that when Eliezer was praying to Hashem, he didn't finish speaking mm. before everything that he asked for started to happen. What does that mean? What does well, that verse emphasizes that before he even got the words out of his mouth? It's it started to unfold before him. So I want I don't want to talk about that now. This is an official teaser. But anyway, the thing is, and there's another another. First of all, we need to go back to this. There's a huge connection between the death of Sarah and the continuity of the legacy of the generations because now Yitzchak, who basically was inconsolable to his mother's death, uh, now Rivka um, goes into Sarah's tent, as it were. We're going to speak more about that. But another interesting thing I just want to point out before I forget about um, this part in terms of precedence and in terms of things that haven't really been said before so clearly is that old age is ascribed to Avraham. Now, mm-hmm. there, there were people that were described as old, as old before, um, but not in this manner that in chapter 24 we read, now Abraham was old, advanced in years. And this also is, is something very, very special. Um, it's like he made a mark on the world, um, not only with his attribute of chesed, of loving kindness, but there was something about old age that he owns, that he represents, and and the basic idea of it, and again in our, in our classes uh, we went into this in tremendous depth. It's just a very great joy to study Torah when you're not in a hurry. Kind of the podcast is kind of like, well, we have a certain amount of time, but you know we, we're taking a lot of time in these Zoom classes. The thing is that Avraham, when old age is ascribed to him here by the Torah, it's not just talking about you know uh, physical strength is waning and mental and and this kind of thing. It's about this acquisition of wisdom and what what old age really really represents in terms of uh, a um, what's called the crown of old age is this tremendous heightened um, spiritual maturity because Abraham's Abraham's um, mission was basically to bring the world to recognize the Creator and 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 when when the world recognizes the Creator then there is a a newfound freedom from from uh, what the mystic sages called mental immaturity, right? Because you you can rise to the level of true intelligence if you really understand who Hashem is, and that's the perfection, as it were, symbolically of old age. Because and so Abraham, since he saw to it 
that the world would get to that level of intelligence and with it really comes age. Therefore, old age is, is, is sort of like um, ascribed to him because he really saw to it that there would be true intelligence and knowledge in the world. And, um, and that's, that's kind of like a, a representation of the concept of him passing down this legacy um, to the world. Now, Sarah's legacy, you know, again, um, there's a verse, it's, it's 2467. It says, And Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah. She became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother. Um, this is an amazing idea because, again, and it actually, you know the Ramban, right? Nachman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He says this very specifically, that Yitzchak had been in this inconsolable mourning, and and uh, then Rivka was brought to him, and um, there's a very, very deep teaching from from our sages. It's very, very amazing, which is that all the days that Sarah was alive, there were four unique things, four unique things about her tent. I'm sure you've heard this, Jim. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are four ways that Sarah's presence in the world, as it were, is described as as symbolized by her tent. Right, one. The candle burned from Erev Shabbat to Erev Shabbat, all week long, from Friday to Friday, the candle burned, right? From Sabbath Eve to Sabbath Eve. Number two, the doors were always open wide to offer hospitality. Number three, that a cloud was fixed over, literally attached over the tent. And number four, that blessing was abundantly found in the dough. Hmm. That's the expression, blessing in the dough. And then what does it remind you of? Hmm. <laughs> it sounds like something else in the Torah. Okay, hold on just one second. Yeah. So 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 when Sarah died, these manifestations they ceased, right? Yeah. What were they? So the candle represented the candle that burned from Sabbath to Sabbath represented the spiritual presence in the house, right? And the open doors, the attribute of hospitality, and the cloud is the Shekhinah itself, the divine presence that was present right. in the home. And the, and a direct connection to Hashem, and the dough is the the idea. The blessing found in the dough is that all of Hashem's blessings can be manifest in our physical life. So so, um, and and this goes back to the to the merit of the woman in the house. Exactly what you what you brought up in Proverbs thirty one. It is and it is thirty one. The woman of valor, um, the home becomes a conduit for blessing. Um, so again, so, so Avraham sends Eliezer to find a wife for, wife for his son. Eliezer, as I know you want to talk about, was a, a kind of like a mysterious character. Is that what you think? He's well, like pretty the, amazing. The one, the one thing I was going to say in essence to what you just uh, shared with us is the fact that uh, uh, Sarah's tent sounds sounds very much like a blueprint for the, the Mishkan. Right, right. It's just amazing. It's it's It, it says something else it's about the holy moment. temple. It's a mini holy temple. It, it's a mini, and, and so it says, God says, I'm. it's almost like, you know, uh, 400 years later, God tells Moses, I've got a blueprint here for for a place of holiness. And it, it's almost as if he said, by the way, I based it on Sarah's tent. <laughs> it's, it's like here, but but anyway, the thing about the so remarkable about Eleazar is you have to look into the oral tradition, and we find out that the reason that Eleazar is uh, a manservant, and and by the way, he's not just some slave that you know runs around bowing and scraping. This man Eleazar, who's like a son to Avraham, he's like a son, 
and 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 he and he even submitted to being uh, circumcised whenever that was brought up. But we learn from the oral tradition that he was a gift given to Avraham when um, uh, Nimrod saw Avraham come out of the fires of Kazdim and tried to bow down to him. And he said, no, no, get up. You're not supposed to bow down. And so he, in some way to show his, his obeisance to short lived, by the way, very short lived honor to Avram, he showered him with gifts. And one of the things he gave him or one of the items he gave him was Eleazar as a servant. And in fact, it was Eleazar who, who went and warned um, Avraham, the next time that Nimrod changed his mind a second time and, and decided, you know what, maybe Avraham really is a threat to me. He survived the fires of the of the furnace, but Eleazar went to him in the night and said, you need to leave because the king is in a bad way and he doesn't feel very predisposed. So here is this man. And it was Eleazar, that, I just want to remind you, who came yeah. and told Avraham that Lod had been kidnapped had been kidnapped exactly and he he was in fact we told the story about uh Eleazar being sent to Sodom to carry out uh to give message to to Lot about some transaction or something and he had the whole thing with the judge there so he was a, a remarkable figure he was he was like Abraham's uh, right-hand man and also yeah. his, his main students he was the main students exactly so so much so that there's also an idea that Eliezer, um, and this whole prayer, you know, that he that he made to to Hashem was such a, such a heartfelt prayer on behalf of his master Avraham when he when he comes and he's looking for the right one and he gave this one test of the offering water for the camels, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and like I said, it came it came about even before we finished speaking. I want to speak about it in the, in our video this week, but you have to understand another thing. In addition to him being the right hand man, in addition to him being like the main student, there's an idea that the Orachayim Kadosh, for example, Rabbi Chaim Ben Attar talks about this in great length on a deep level. That there's a certain amount of disappointment here, because Eliezer thought that his daughter would marry Yitzchak. Ah, uh, wow! You just mentioned that that Eliezer was a student of Avraham Avinu. And there is a, a story told of when uh, Avraham is sitting at the table of Noah, and Noah and Shem are telling him of the remarkable things that happened previous, prior to the the, the Mabul, the flood, and that uh, when when uh, when Noah told Avraham of how he he worked tirelessly to make sure that the animals were fed and watered before he and his family were, stunned Avraham. And Avraham said within himself, if if someone who God called perfect in his generation, and he was, he was chosen to survive the flood, if this man was so thoughtless that he, he wanted to make sure that the animals, <clears throat> excuse me, the animals were fed and watered before his family... So if, thoughtful, if, so thoughtful. Right, if he was so thoughtful that if he was so kind to the animals, how much kinder should I be to my fellow man? And I, I have to wonder if if Eliezer wasn't infused with that idea. Okay, so this is exactly what I want to tell you. First, the, the, the verse that I was thinking of is, is actually verse 21 of chapter 20, 24, where you know she finished giving him to drink, and then she says, 
of her own initiative, I will draw water even for your camels until they finish drinking. So she hurried and emptied her jug. And it says, the man was astonished at her. Yeah. This is an amazing verse. The man was astonished at her, reflecting silently to know whether Hashem had made his journey successful or not. The, one of the backdrops, backstories of that verse is is all of the internal struggle and um, and um, conflict that he was going through. Because again, he was real part of him was hoping that his own that his own wife would marry Yitzchak, his own daughter would marry Yitzchak. But listen, here's the thing: opening your heart in the deepest way, right? This is. We spoke about the tent, right? And you you pointed out so beautifully that that tent is like that, that tent is like a prototype for the holy temple, for the Mishkan, for the holy temple. So he comes he comes uh, to um, to find the right woman, right at Avraham's bidding, and um, this is his this is his prayer, right? Now Yitzchak, by the way, goes out. And he, when he first meets Rivka, he's going. He's he's out praying at the site that is to become the holy temple. By the way, right? And Isaac went forth to pray in the field towards evening. He lifts up his eyes and sees, and behold, camels were approaching. That's chapter twenty-four and verse sixty-three. That's the caravan conveying Rivka, right? And Eliezer arrives, mm-hmm. tells over to Yitzhak everything that happened. But listen, the, the, you you mentioned about Eliezer certainly being aware of, of the home. He <clears throat> he certainly knew quite well what kind of home uh, Yitzhak had been raised in and what kind of home um, Yitzhak wanted to make. And he, and he certainly w- had been aware of uh, all the manifestations that had been present in, in Sarah's tent. And, uh, and um, so then he goes on his mission, this, this Eliezer, right? This amazing man who basically is like the, the, fountain that absorbs all of Avraham's teachings in the world at this point, right? And uh, he has this mission. And so we read these verses, right? He comes up with this whole test, right? He swears to Avraham by putting his hand near the place of his Brit Mila, which was the sacred the sacred act, right? Right. And uh, And he swears on that which is the holiest thing, the mitzvah, right? And he says, uh, he, he comes to, to uh, Aram Naraim, the city of Nahor. He, he, he puts the camels, to, he has them kneel down. And then he says, Hashem, God of my master Avraham, may you so arrange it for me this day that you do kindness with my master Avraham. Behold, I'm standing here by the spring of water and the daughters of the townsmen come out to draw water. Let it be. Isn't that a song? That the maiden to whom I shall say, please tip your jug so that I may so I may drink. And who rep- when I say to her, please tip over your jug so I may drink. And she says, drink and I'll even water your camels. You, her you will have designated for your servant for Isaac. And may I know through her that you have done kindness with my master. And then we read, and he, he hadn't even finished speaking yet. And suddenly Rivka comes out and she actually says, and he says to her, could I drink? And she says, Drink and I'm gonna. And then she, when when she finished giving him, she says, "I'll even draw water for your camels." What is the whole idea here? And after seeing Sarah's tent with the dough, with the candle, with the cloud of the shechina, uh, that I would think, right, that those are the attributes that Yitzchak would be concerned with, the, the things that he saw in his mother, all the things that the that the cloud, all the things that the cloud and the and the and the blessing and the dough and the and the candle. Uh, and the open doors uh, represent Yitzhak had seen that growing up in his mother's home. Now, 
We know that Rivka did not come from a home where the Shekhinah was present. Excuse me, mm. but I'm sorry no. I have to put it that way. But Betuel, Rivka's father, was quite evil. And uh, she didn't come from a home where there was a cloud over the tent manifesting the Shekhinah. And um, the only thing is, though, that, that Eliezer, he really understood what Avraham and Sarah were all about and what it what it takes to be the ambassador of Hashem in this world. And so he's only going for one thing, and that is he's looking for a true woman of kindness. Yeah. And that's the, that's the un- unbelievable thing about these verses. They're so economical, and Eliezer's prayer was so economical. But, he, but he's asking for some water, and he's saying, let me sip, if you please, a little water from your jug. And then she says, drink. And then when she finished giving him to drink, she says, I'll draw water even for your camels. And so they're finished drinking that. That's why he was astonished on a simple level. I I was going on the deeper level of him thinking about his own home, but it takes a very long time for camels to drink, Jim. He was astonished whether Hashem made his journey successful because this one little group of verses tells us so much about the attribute of chesed that was inherent in Rivka. And this is a nice Jewish girl. This is what this is what Abraham wants for a daughter-in-law. This is what Yitzchak needs. He's looking for the, the attribute of kindness. Uh-huh. And so, and and because you know, uh, you can look it up, everybody, on on uh, online, how long it takes for camels to drink and if they haven't drunk for a while. And this is not a, not a small thing. This is a big thing that she's saying she's gonna stand there until all the camels have finished drinking. And and thus, the punchline is that when that when Rivka arrives in Yitzchak's life, our sages teach, Sarah's tent came back to life, and all these four things returned to the tent, and and that's why Yitzchak was consoled because he realized that she is an example of his mother's archetype, and this is the true meaning of the, of the verse sixty-seven that Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah's mother, and and he took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother because Rivka became, as Sarah had been, demonstrating the same attributes, which were the important, the important things that that uh, that we see from all of this, as as usual, and as we've been talking about since we began uh, learning in this in this rem- remarkable first chumash uh, about Avraham. It's only Chesed that counts. It's really only the attribute of of kindness, which is the legacy for um, for all generations. This was the only important factor in Eliezer determining that this is the woman, that this was the sign from heaven that he asked for. He wants to see that this right. girl would have the attribute of, of chesed. So, so literally, the Shekhinah returned to the tent, and that's what was bequeathed to, to us by, by Avraham, really, his whole... His whole thing of the knowledge of God that brings intellectual maturity, you know, not just white hair. It's that if we're in this world, the intellectual maturity is if we really believe in God and we really become wise, you know, they change the world, Avraham and Sarah, through their chesed, through their acts of, love, of loving kindness. And then Rivka follows suit, takes up her role, closes the circle. And and this is what the sages teach that to this very day, the divine presence, the Shekhinah, is manifest on all those people who seek out and pursue acts of loving kindness. And that's really, that's really the beautiful idea of the, of the Parsha. And anybody who is uh, contemplating marriage or is maybe having some uh, uh, challenges in marriage these days, I, I would uh, suggest that uh, 
I would implore you to read this Torah Parsha because it is, it is, it says, even though it is, Sarah's passing away triggers this entire Parsha. It's really, you know, again, it's called the life of Sarah, a, a woman who, who never wasted one minute of her time on, on the earth. And even the template for choosing a wife, isn't it really established with uh what what took place after her passing with the choosing of a, of a wife for for Isaac the the choosing subsequent wives uh this is idea of going to a you know a, a, a fountain in the in the in the town where everybody's watering their animals uh that's that's a chosen again or rather that's a that's a test for um is it um is it for um Who's the next wife that happens with, or does it? Am I have I gone off on Rachel, a tangent yes. here? Yaakov uh, met Rachel by a well. Yeah, well. same yes. thing. That's, that's uh, another concept that the forefathers met their met their Moshe also met his wife by mm -hmm. by water. And I think the 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 spiritual the the the, the upper level of teaching is that is that uh, because it it is the idea of sharing water. Uh, that brings a couple together, and what is the Torah called? Exactly, I was going to say uh, the Torah is water. Isaiah says that all who are thirsty come to water, and the point is the main thing is when you're looking for the, the spouse is what is this person's attributes? How do they interface with others? Are they kind? Are they giving? Are they selfless? That's the only thing that counts in this world, Jim. That's you know, not not intellect and not uh, anything else. Just the aspect of of the willingness to to help other people and then shockingly Abraham at a very advanced age after the passing of of Sarah this beautiful woman this this uh, woman full of virtue and intelligence he remarries in, in advanced years he, he remarries Keturah who who I think every all the sages agree that she was Hagar right mostly yes okay and what's interesting is that it says that uh, he sent these six sons away to the east with gifts. And I often wonder if uh, we don't see echoes of, of Abraham's teachings in the people of the east, because it's always been fascinating to me that uh, in India, a holy man is called a Brahmin, which sounds very much like whose name? Yes, exactly. Abraham. 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 Yeah. There is definitely a, a tradition that the sages talk about, actually, that um, certain knowledge Avraham gave over as a legacy to the children of the East. Amen. Now, speaking of people passing away, as our Parsha marks the death of Sarah, um, this week it was Shabbat, actually. Um, Rabbi Sachs. Yes, we suffered a. Yeah. a a terrible loss in the former chief rabbi of the British uh, Isles, Great Britain, um, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was a tremendous intellect, tremendous soul, uh, just an, an unbelievable teacher. And everything that he did really was f filled with compassion, with concern for the, the legacy of, of Torah carrying over into the future generations. Just an amazing, amazing person that just spanned uh, tremendous um, gaps in, 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 and filled them between all sorts of sectors of society, Jews, non-Jews. He was an amazing representative of, uh, of what a Torah scholar really is all about. True Hasid. Uh, may his memory be for a blessing. Um, 
another loss that uh, is now being reported as we go to Mike is the death of Saeb Arakat, who uh, passed away from the COVID after uh, lung complications, um, the, where he was being treated by Israel, who he, of course, at every opportunity, at every world stage, um, sullied and accused of all sorts of ethnic cleansing and the most horrible crimes. But Israel uh, gladly, um, I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, I suppose it was, um, treated him um, the past month uh, with the best doctors and the best um, care. Saeb Arakat, one of the Palestinian architects of the Oslo Accords and a very outspoken and vocal supporter of terror and pay for slay and all of the heinous crimes that have been per, uh, perpetrated by um, armed Palestinians against um, Jewish men, women, and children. Um, and speaking of, of Saeb Arakat and the Palestinian narrative of denial of uh, the Jewish connection to the land of Israel uh, on the world stage, uh, and of course um, the shadow uh, hanging over us, is it or is it not? <laughs> In terms of um, the... Um, well, he can't. He can't actually be called the president-elect yet. Formally, can he? Though the media has crowned him the president-elect, but the the um, the so-called president-elect um, Biden has already made it clear, or though speaking his name has already made it clear, that he will be immediately renegotiating with Iran. Uh, that, of course, is threatening Israel's survival on a daily basis, and um, the, his vice president-elect has made it clear that she wants to immediately reopen the PLO mission in Washington. And uh, of course, Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, is is saying very clearly that he expects America to move the embassy back from Jerusalem back to Tel Aviv. Please. I just want to say about all of this. I, I, don't, I don't know if we did should. You, did you read the headline that uh, Joe Biden will make Abbas great again? <laughs> Okay, we're not going. We're not going to go in, in all sorts of different directions here, Jim. Are we? But I just wanted to say one thing because it's Parshat Chaye Sarah, and we're learning about the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, and and the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron is an example of the deepest Jewish roots in this land. King David, before he was king in Jerusalem, reigned in Hebron for seven years. Yeah. The the um, whole concept of the connection between um, the Jewish people and this land uh, can be seen through the lens of everything that the city of Hebron represents. And it's, it's just so amazing. It's a, it's a course of study, to, uh, especially uh, important when we are beginning to, you know, to talk about this, this subject of, of the denial and the attempts that are made to, um, separate between Israel and her land, and to call into question her the legality of of her uninterrupted connection to this land, uh, and all of the fabrications of history that have been made to support the Palestinian myth mythological narrative. So this is all actually quite quite important. Don't you think? And it's it's also uh, noteworthy that Avraham could have, be, in the name of zealotry could have taken that cave and said, God has told me that this land belongs to me. He didn't do that. He followed the laws of, of that region. Of the land at the time, right? The first plot of land 
purchased for the family of Abraham for his descendants because it was bought for his descendants more than anything. It was it was bought for all time, and that's the thing about about um, the the purchase here. Um, which is recorded in the beginning of our parsha that Avraham, you know, made sure to purchase it from Ephron. At first, you know, uh, Ephron says, "Oh, what's?" Uh, at first, he says, "No, uh, you know, I'll give it to you." And you know, you've been a prince amongst us. And then Avraham said, "You know, Avraham makes it clear. No, he he wants to buy it uh, yeah. he, for full price." And then so so then so then finally Ephron says, "Oh, what's four hundred silver shekels between between friends? Give me four hundred. Give, give me four hundred shekels." But, a lot of money, wasn't it? I mean, and, and and this this is echoed later on in history, uh, at the turn of the century, when when many Jewish families uh, got the idea of returning to the land of Israel, and especially the, the area around Tel Aviv. Every Jewish family that came there, they actually bought their parcels of land when they when they immigrated to Israel. So this is a very deep thing that we that we have here. It's a very famous idea because you know Hashem uh, promises the entire land to the children of Israel. And then in the book of Deuteronomy for example, we have the borders, the biblical borders of the land of Israel, right? And Hashem promised the whole thing, but there's only three places in the whole Torah that the Torah actually records a deed of sale. Yes. Even though Hashem promised everything, there's three places where like we could say, look, here's the contract. And those three places, ironically or not so ironically, but rather serendipitously or, you know, in a way that was orchestrated, we have those three places are like the very symbol of all the contention of all the historical lies of all the attempts to wrest W-R-E-S-T, the land away from us. Those three places are here, the tomb of the patriarchs, which Avraham purchased. And of course, the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite, which King David purchased from Aravna, and the tomb of Yosef in Shechem, which Yaakov purchased. And those those are three places that are the, the the heart of the of the of the land of Israel. And I want you to know, speaking of you mentioned people coming back, and this whole idea of the Jewish roots in this land. If you go through history. Um, a review of this land throughout the ages, beginning with like the Roman writer Dio Cassius, uh, shortly after the time of destruction, going all the way through, let's say the 1500s, where you have one with one historian after another reporting about the desolation of the land and how it's been completely empty. And uh, in the 1590, there's a there's a um, very famous. Um, historical recording of it, what's described as a simple English visitor to Jerusalem who wrote, nothing there is to be seen but a little of the old walls, which is yet re- remaining, and all the rest is grass, moss, and weeds, much like to a piece of rank or moist ground. And then, and then you know, you, ha- you have uh, in the 1700s, the British archaeologist Thomas Shaw writing that uh, everything is lacking in people and, and that there's nobody here, and all throughout the years. And then, of course, the famous... Um, um, description of Mark Twain in his inimitable fashion, where he actually expresses a scorn for what he called the uh, air quotes romanticized uh, account of the of what was called Palestine. Again, that name was that was invented by the Romans. He writes in 1867. He writes, um, "There's not a solitary village throughout the whole extent for 35 miles in either direction." Two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, not a single permanent habitation. One may ride 10 miles and not see 10 human beings. And uh, he goes on and on uh, to talk about the um, 
He calls Galilee uh, unpeopled deserts, rusty mounds of barrenness. Uh, And uh, he says, we never saw a human being along the whole roots. And the whole thing is how amazing it is that that the Palestinians so-called claim this heritage and this uninterrupted presence for 5,000 years when there's no Palestinian uh, coinage, language, archaeology, et cetera, et cetera, because of the, the, one has to learn about the myth of the Palestinian people. But anyway, and all of these sources, please write to me, anybody, any listener that's interested in knowing the exact sources of the historical volumes in which all of these things can be learned. It's so important to be an advocate for the state of Israel and for the Jewish homeland and for the inalienable rights of the people of Israel to their own land, especially if we are coming into a transition period, which of course is part of a divine process. And um, if, if the people of Israel haven't been a victim of fake news, I don't know who has. Exactly. You know, so it's, it's uh, this is a wrong that needs to be righted. And, and it's, it's, I think the reason that it, people have fallen prey to it is because the people that we call the media are are really, in many ways, a very uneducated lot. There, I, I said it. Because when I was getting, when I became, uh, when I got into broadcast radio back in the 60s, from behind me, I saw people coming up in the business who had no use for history. And I would talk to them, people who wanted to be news people, the news anchors. And I, we, I would begin to ask about, you know, what have they studied in history? And they went, oh, history's boring. And I thought, we're in trouble. And we're seeing, we're seeing the fruit of that uh, completely, you know, blossom today. If you want to be so bold and frank and put it out there, I think that one of the, one of the things that comes out the, the strongest, the most clearest, when a lot of the, the major media people express themselves i think that the that uh, a person who has a a modicum of education and um sensitivity to the 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 arc of the cycle of human history i think one of the things that you realize is that these people who are in front who are wearing a suit and tie or a woman is wearing a dress they're front sitting in front of a microphone so therefore oh they must know everything they're the news i think that they are so ignorant mm-hmm. and they are so just despite their ignorance, so full of themselves as as being the ones who are setting the agenda and who, as far as the viewer is concerned, these are the facts, but it must be true because it's on the news. Well, you know what? Uh, bring it on. <laughs> let's see. Let's see what it's all about. They think, they think that their emotions are what validate them, not their knowledge. That's the sad part <clears throat> is they've let, they've let their, their emotions get in the way of, of learning, you know? So, that's enough. Again, what Abraham brought to the world, Abraham, yeah. Abraham brought to the world um, this idea of spiritual maturity and wisdom and knowledge associated with what the verse calls old age. And it's all stemming from the belief in, in one God and the clear understanding of what that means for us as people. So let's take that and the legacy of Sarah's tent and the chesed that they brought into the world, the loving kindness, which was the sole test for Eliezer to find a match for Yitzhak. Obviously, the Torah is conveying to us um, eternal cosmic reverberating principles that we have to run with in order to take our place in this timeline. And uh, it's all about us now. And, um, And that's also so important to know. I've been telling people, don't fret. Don't be, if you'll pardon me, don't be blue. 
Uh, I knew you'd like that. Because the fact is that we are part of a cosmic process that Hashem is giving us the privilege to prove our mettle in this in these in these days and uh, it's our turn it's our turn to be alive now and to and to run with the all of these messages that we're learning about from the forefathers and to make this world into a dwelling place for hashem that's our job amen james as always it's been scintillating and inspiring and wonderful to be in your presence and I should say, same here. I, I bask in your glow, sir. So, <laughs> thank and, you. And both of us together bask in the glow of our wonderful listeners. Amen. Again. Who are really um, very, very special, very special people. And bless everyone with a wonderful week full of knowledge and gaining wisdom, spiritual maturity, opportunities for good deeds, and... I think we should change this into our, our permanent um, sign en- off. ending sign off. I think it should be Jesse Colin Young. You know, come on, people now, smile on your brother, everybody get together, try to love one another. Right now, amen. Shalom. <laughs>